Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews who has met with us, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the man that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle, that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is God's word. You may be seated. As a pastor and elder in this congregation, I strive to live above reproach according to the standards in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, That's really important uh, to be a leader of God's people. Until I read a book in 2019 and realized that I had to reevaluate some things. That book was The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by a pastor named John Mark Comer. And, And as I read it, I began to realize, to paraphrase Isaiah, 
Woe is me, for I am a man of an inhumane pace, and I live among a people of inhumane pace. I just, I realized that that was true of me, and that this is an area where maybe I, sh- I, I wouldn't be able to say to you, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus in my pace of life, in my unhurriedness, in my stillness and silence. I couldn't say that. I couldn't be above reproach in that regard. And so uh, fast forward to me prepping for this sermon, and I re-listened to that book at 2x speed, uh, and, and was reassessing some of the things that have happened since 2019. Like 2020 slowed us down, but we are back at, at high speeds again, if not faster than before. And so we find ourselves in this situation where we regularly have more to do than we have time, energy, attention, or motivation for. Dr. Richard Swinson uh, defines margin as the space between our load and our limits, and many of us are chronically overburdened, pathologically overextended, and dangerously exhausted. This is the place we find ourselves. But we, we all kind of know this, don't we? So why don't we slow down? Well, according to Harvard Business Review, the term workaholic was coined in 1971 by a psychologist named Wayne Oates. He described it like this. It's an uncontrollable need to work incessantly that becomes an addiction. The factors, uh, the symptoms look like this. An inner compulsive drive to work hard, thinking about work constantly, and feeling guilty and restless when we are not working. Overwork, uh, or I should say, death by overwork is common enough that the Japanese have a name for it, Kuroshi. This happens. Death by overworking, relentless pursuit of more tasks to do and to get done. Why do we do this to ourselves? That's the question. Well, a New York Times article called The Busy Trap says this, quote, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance. An existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. You see, our busyness becomes this existential reassurance that we matter, that our lives matter. So what's the big, what's the big deal? Like, didn't Mike Jones teach us all that if you don't grind, you don't shine? Why, are we making such a, why am I ba- making such a big deal out of this? Well, it is a big deal because overwork erodes your life with God, with your neighbor, and with yourself. There was a study done, a five-year worldwide study called Distracted from God by a professor named Michael Zigarelli, where he surveyed over 20,000 Christians across the globe, and he identified busyness as a major issue in the spiritual life. This was his hypothesis. There's five points to it. First, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, second, God becoming more marginalized in your lives, which leads to, third, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, fourth, you becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and the cycle repeats again. It's not a small problem. It's a very big deal. And so I want to just submit to you, maybe your anxiety or apathy, 
Maybe your lust or laziness is merely symptomatic of a deeper problem. Maybe the root issue here is that you are too busy to live an emotionally healthy, relationally connected, spiritually vibrant life of discipleship to Jesus. And all of those things are just symptoms of that deeper problem. I'm just submitting that to you for your consideration. And and so I want you to hear me say something, though, that kind of gets you off the hook a little bit. That is that this, this situation, this problem is far worse than anything your willpower can handle alone. That's why the language of addiction is actually fitting here. But I would actually encourage you to to take a better term for it, enslavement. That's the term from our text this morning. That there is a level of enslavement here. In other words, slavery says that your problem is bigger than your individual choices. You didn't just make a bunch of bad decisions to get here and you can't just make a bunch of good decisions to get out of here. In fact, if, if slavery is the right way to say it, then, then maybe you're a slave to a kingdom of rush and hurry, of toil and exhaustion. And that's exactly where we find in our text this morning is a clash of two kingdoms. There's these two co- kingdoms coming together, a royal rumble of rulers is what we're seeing in, in Exodus 5 this morning. That's why in, 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 in Exodus 5, verse 1, Moses comes with this phrase, thus says the Lord, to which Pharaoh responds in verse 10, thus says Pharaoh. Competing kingdoms. Who's really in charge? Who has authority over these people? Who has authority over you? That's the question that we're wrestling with this morning because maybe some of us in here are living under a regime of a powerful kingdom. And that kingdom has a king that asks for more and more and more while giving less and less and less until eventually he demands everything and gives nothing. Maybe some of you find yourself there this morning. I wouldn't doubt it if that was true. And so this morning we're going to see this contest of kingdoms between the kingdom of scarcity and the kingdom of generosity. The kingdom of scarcity versus the kingdom of generosity because you are today right now embroiled in this age-old battle. This didn't end in Exodus chapter 5. It continues to this day. And so here's here's the call. Here's the challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's look at the kingdom of scarcity together. If you have a Bible, get it out. Open to Exodus 5. Turn it on. You're going to need the text in front of you as we walk through this passage verse by verse. I want you to listen to the language of the kingdom of scarcity and tell me if it sounds familiar to any of you. Like, tell me if you find yourself trying to go on a vacation with friends or family and your heart says, verse four, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. You make them rest from your burdens. Or just when you finished a big project, you take a deep breath only to inhale verse eight, you shall by no means reduce your work for they are idle. Or you're grateful for a promotion only to have verse nine ringing in your ears, let heavier work be laid on her. Let heavier work be laid on him. The kingdom of scarcity has this ability to take away the straw, which I'm gonna allegorically define as whatever it is that we never have enough of. For many of you, it's this acronym I like, which is TEAM. Time, energy, attention, motivation. The kingdom of scarcity is just going to always pull that in, suck it out, and say, hey, keep doing work. Verse 11, your work will not be reduced in the least. I don't care how much energy you lack. 
I don't care how much time you don't have. You're being lazy. This is the kingdom of scarcity. Like, let's just be honest for a moment. Don't you wake up to your task list urging you like the taskmasters of verse 13 saying, complete your work, your daily task each day. Or when you put your head on the pillow at night to go to sleep, don't you hear your inbox shouting, verse 14, why have you not done all your tasks today and yesterday as in the past? When you finally get a moment of rest, doesn't something in your mind cry out, verse 17, you are idle. You are idle. Go now and work. Why? Why does it say that? Because verse 18 you must still deliver. No rest. So why do these ancient words speak so clearly to our modern malady? Why is that? How is that? Because while Pharaoh was a real historical person, he embodied this spirit of scarcity that transcends Egypt. In literary terms, he is an archetype of the kingdom of scarcity that shows up again and again and again. Like Sauron from the Rings of Power, he has had many names. There's this predictable pattern to the kingdom of scarcity. I want to kind of unpack this together. It looks like this. There's not enough, scarcity, right? There's not enough, which creates fear. And out of fear, control is asserted, and then control devolves into tyranny, rinse and repeat throughout the rest of history. There's not enough, so we must squeeze the most out of our people at the cheapest cost possible while cutting the budget or cutting the straw, because really, people are only worth what they can produce. That's true in the kingdom of scarcity. That was true in Egypt. It's true in all the kingdoms of scarcity to this day. There's not enough, so we must develop systems of getting and spending, having and holding. This is called an economy. But it doesn't have to be that way. Even secular thinkers and leaders are saying it doesn't have to be that way. In a fantastic book on entrepreneurship called Zero to One, Peter Thiel, who is a venture capitalist and co-founder of PayPal, he, he argues throughout that whole book that a world of scarcity is driven by competition whereas a world of abundance thrives on creativity. And he's saying, hey, choose the world of abundance and creativity and go from zero to one. Like, make things, innovate, create. This is how we progress as a people. This is his argument. As far as I know, not a believer, not a disciple of Jesus. In in other business literature, they'll describe it like this. Through innovations, companies can have a blue ocean strategy where they find and develop and and create new marketplaces. Contrast that with what's called a red ocean strategy where the piece of the pie is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller because everybody's competing with one another. It's called a red ocean strategy because the cutthroat nature of the competition makes the water blood red. This is a kingdom of scarcity versus a kingdom of generosity in an entrepreneurship book written by a secular author. In other words, this is, this is not the way it has to be, and yet the kingdom of scarcity says there's not enough. We must dominate through a ruthless culture of dog-eat-dog, social Darwinism, even cruelty. Maybe one of the best archetypical examples of a kingdom of scarcity is Germany in the 1930s. 
And there was a pastor named Martin Niemöller who was a courageous, heroic German pastor who stood up against Adolf Hitler. But, but earlier, when he was a younger man, he was invited to a gathering of church leaders in 1933 when Hitler had just come into power. And, and Martin Niemöller stood in the back and he just listened. He didn't speak at all. And when he got home that night, his wife asked him, hey, what did you learn? And his reply was this, quote, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Why? Because Hitler, like Pharaoh before him, is afraid that there's not enough. So he must use cruel, coercive power in order to have it all. Because he's fearful, he's ruthless. Now you might be thinking, what, is this, what does this matter? Why does this connect my daily work and, and the ways in which I'm stressed? Well, be beneath and behind every pharaoh or Hitler, every tyrant and every tyrannical task list is the serpent. It's the serpent who has been subtly, subtly implying scarcity from the beginning. This is his ancient tactic. He whispers in our ears something like this, God is holding out on you. There's not enough for you. So make sure you get yours. Make sure you strive, you work. You better gratify your desires with your own resources. This is the whisper of the serpent. And few people have put it to words better than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where he portrays Uncle Screwtape, a senior demon, writing to Wormwood, a junior demon. And this is what he says. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda but an appalling truth. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. I don't know of a better encapsulation of the clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of scarcity and the kingdom of generosity. And so, While the serpent's regime of scarcity is alive and well, there is another kingdom that has made a beachhead into this world and has outposts all over the place. And that is the kingdom of generosity, my second point. In verse one, look at the top of our text. You see some signs here that we're talking about a different way to rule. Look at verse one again. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. You see, whereas Pharaoh uses his coercive power to tighten his grip on his slaves, that's the language that's used elsewhere, the Lord uses creative power to free his people. While, while Pharaoh has the foreman saying in verse 16, your servants are beaten. In other words, he identifies the Israelites as nothing more than servants, slaves, cattle, if you will. The Lord calls them in verse one, my people. This is a different way to rule. 
Pharaoh wants to keep Israel as a slave, as slave labor in Egypt, but the Lord says, let my people go. Why? That they may hold a feast. Think abundance, think generosity. A feast to me in the wilderness, the place of scarcity. So this God is able to make a feast possible in the place of scarcity. This is a different way to rule. So yes, Israel will have to choose whom this day whom they will serve, either Pharaoh or Yahweh, but there's a different way to rule in these two different kingdoms. We see that just in the subtleties of this text. Let me ask you, have you ever asked a question that you immediately regret asking? I, I, I'm very, I'd actually be really curious to hear what that conjures up for some of you. It's basically what happens to Pharaoh in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's basically saying, hey, I have one question. Who do you think you are? I'm king. I'm God. Who's Yahweh coming in here trying to take these Israelites out of here? This is not going to happen. I refuse to recognize the authority of another. This is Pharaoh defying Yahweh's claims, to which Yahweh responds, hold my wine. <laughs> hold my wine. And look at, this is, what, this is the repeated refrain. He says, who is Yahweh? I don't know who this person is, the Lord. This repeated refrain throughout the book of Exodus occurs over and over and over again. Just listen, Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Exodus 7, 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh while I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus 10, 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Exodus 14, 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Exodus 16, 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. Last one, Exodus 29, 46, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Was, did that get to be a little bit too much? Imagine if you were Pharaoh and you had little object lessons connected to each one of those. It's not, it's not helpful for him. He asks, who is Yahweh? I don't know who that is. Okay, I'll teach you. I'll teach you who Yahweh is. That's essentially the response there. Why does this matter so much? Because knowing the Lord is the way out. Knowing the Lord is the way out. You see, because God could break the shackles off your body and leave your souls enslaved. And so knowing the Lord, Jesus in, verse, uh, in John 17, 3 says it like this. This is eternal life. This is the, the kingdom life that comes from the kingdom of generosity that breaks into the here and now. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That you may know but how does the knowledge of God set us free? When I was a student at UCF, 
the University of Central Florida, go Knights. Uh, Michael Jordan, his son Marcus Jordan, like the Michael Jordan, the GOAT, his son Marcus Jordan was on our basketball team. It was great. I'd sit in the stands and I could look up and there was these two giant bodyguards just standing behind this one guy sitting up there watching his son at every game. And you all knew it was Michael was in the house. Well, something happened, and that was that our sponsor as a university was Adidas. So all of our apparel, all of our jerseys, everything was Adidas. Well, when Marcus Jordan stepped on the team, he said, I refuse to wear anything but Jordans. And so it became this controversy, and, and Marcus either was going to be benched uh, and, and basically not step on the, on the court wearing anything but Adidas, or something else was going to have to happen. And so what happened was Adidas dropped UCF. They're like, we're done. We're not going to sponsor you anymore if this is the kind of shenanigans you're going to pull. I kid you not, like the next morning I drove onto campus and it was decked out with Jordan apparel and attire. And I mean, there was like these giant murals across the campus of like our athletes wearing Jordan gear, like laying out for football. Like, it was incredible. Overnight. Why? Marcus Jordan had the ability to stand up to the, power at, the powers that be because he had a father who had lots of power and lots of generosity. You see, the kingdom of generosity, when you know the father in the kingdom of generosity, you can, like Moses and Aaron, go to the king of the kingdom of scarcity and tell him how it really is. So knowing the Lord, knowing whose you are, that that you are sons and daughters of a generous king with creative power actually frees you up to live in a new way in this kingdom of scarcity. What I'm calling the kingdom of scarcity, Jesus called the kingdom of the heavens. Why did he call it that? Because to be a disciple of Jesus is to learn through practice to live in this world expecting the power and the generosity and the resources of heaven to be breaking into the present moment at any given time. Heaven coming to earth. This is what it's like to live within the kingdom of generosity while we are in this world that is a world seeming to be one of scarcity. And so Jesus in his kingdom manifesto called the Sermon on the Mount says it basically all comes down to this. Know the Father who is in heaven. If you know the Father who is in heaven, if you live as if he has all of the wealth and all of the abundance and all of the generosity you could ever need, you can actually turn your cheek. You can actually give sacrificially. You don't have to be anxious because he clothes the, the, the lilies of the field and, and feeds the birds of the air. How much more will he clothe and feed you, O oh, you of little faith? You see, Jesus' whole kingdom message was that the kingdom of the heavens is breaking into the here and now. And he will teach you, if you will be his apprentice, how to live within that kingdom the kingdom of generosity, in the midst of a world of scarcity. You see, God wants to make himself known by setting you free. That's what he's after. So in closing, how do we know the Lord? Well, there's three practices in the book of Exodus, but also three practices in what we call the common rhythm. The common rhythm is a set of practices that allow us as a community to live a common life for a common love. That is the love of God and love of our neighbor. Here's the three practices. Worship, rest, and bless. Worship, rest, and bless. If you have your Bible, look again at Exodus 5 verse 1. The very first word of the whole chapter is this. 
afterward. After what? Well, if you, if you have an actual Bible in front of you, you just look at the last chapter, uh, sorry, verse 31 of chapter 4 says this, they bowed their heads and worshipped. After they bowed their heads and worshipped, they were freed up to have the boldness to go confront the kingdom of scarcity. Do you see how that works? We've got these chapter divisions that aren't always helpful, but those words matter. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. Afterward, after they worship, they're able to go. But even at the end of our text, Moses and Aaron, who have boldness, they seem to falter a little bit. You see, at the end of the text, they're concerned, and and Moses accuses the Lord of allowing evil to happen to them. He's like, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? Well, they don't realize that God's word to them has already said that Pharaoh will not let you go unless he's compelled by my mighty hand. The Lord already told them that this is what it was going to happen, but Moses and Aaron forgot, and you forget too. And so you need a weekly rhythm of gathering with the people of God, coming together to participate in scripture and sacrament and prayer and praise together to realign our hearts together to live within the kingdom that really is, that is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of generosity. And so we need worship. We need public worship because where else are you gonna hear about the king of generosity who gives you not only plenty of things to richly enjoy, but his very own self in order to set you free? Where else are you gonna hear the words of Jesus from the cross saying, it is finished, so you can cease from your striving? Where else are you gonna eat this bread that comes from heaven that reminds us of the sustaining presence of Jesus among us? Where else are you gonna be reminded of those things but public worship, this smorgasbord of grace? All of these opportunities to know the Lord together as a people. The second thing is, rest. We rest. We define rest as setting aside one day to rest from all that we know to be work. Setting aside one day, 24 hours out of a seven-day week to, to cease, to do nothing that you know to be work. You know that Pharaoh gives more work and less straw. When Yahweh comes in as king, he gives more rest and less work. Early on, very early on in the life history of Israel, God immediately gives them this keystone habit called Sabbath because it was going to be one of the most formative things that they could do as the people of God. You see, rest is both a gift and a command, and yet many of you don't practice the Sabbath. Why is that, do you think? You know for your own heart, you know. But I'm going to quote the Pope of the PCA, Tim Keller, because he's going to help us here. He says this, anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, even if a self-imposed one. He goes on, your own heart or our materialistic culture or an exploitative organization or all of the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore a declaration of our freedom. It means you are not a slave not to your culture's expectations, your family's hopes, your grad school's demands, not even to your own insecurities. It is important that you learn to speak this truth to yourself with a note of triumph. Otherwise, you will feel guilty for taking time off or you will never be able to truly unplug. Psalm 46.10 says it like this. Be still 
and know that I am God. In other words, there's a knowledge of God that is only given to those who can say to hell with hustle. The third practice is bless. We define bless as asking the spirit who you might bless with words, time, gifts, prayer, or service. You see, because our generosity in our world of scarcity may be, may be the most important argument either for or against Christianity. Um, one singer named Neil Hannon, uh, whose father was an Anglican bishop, but he had since left the faith and ran away because of the hypocrisy, particularly around how Christians use their money. And so, so he wrote this song, and in the song he's, he's wrestling with this tension of a desire to, to want to know God, but he's, it's thwarted by the hypocrisy of the church. This is the song. This is a lyric from it. The cars in the churchyard are shiny and German, completely at odds with the theme of the sermon. And all through communion, I stare at the people squeezing themselves through the eye of the needle. Following Jesus is about the transformation of our imagination so that we see the world as God sees it. One of the, one of the diagnostics is, how generous are you with your money? How freely do you give? And, and not just your money, because in, in a world of limited goods where everybody feels this tendency to hoard and protect our stuff in order to pursue selfish desires, um, God's breaking in and, and inviting us to an economy of heaven that's among us. An economy of heaven where, where new creation abundance is breaking in and it overwhelms us with blessing in order to bless other people, the people around us. And so consumerism is, is another name for one of the values in the kingdom of scarcity. And consumerism seduces us into a love affair with more. Always needing more, always wanting more. Always having to strive to get, to gain, to grab. But by faith, we give generously and sacrificially of our words, our time, our gifts, our prayer, and our service because we are sustained by God daily, here and now, and eternally there and then. Listen to the language of Ephesians 2, 7. In the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us who believe, who are in Christ Jesus. Like ages upon ages upon ages of just showering grace and generosity and kindness. I don't even know what that's going to look like. It blows the circuits. But we live with hopeful expectation of that there and then, which frees us up here and now to distribute our goods freely to those who are in need around us. And so, you might be asking, could I really slow down enough to have more time? Could I really give my money until it hurts and expect that I'll have enough? Could I really be lavish in my praise of others without feeling like I'm diminishing my own significance? Could, I really, could there really be enough mercy to go around to where I could forgive others even as I have been forgiven? Well, that depends. What kingdom do you live in? Jesus said it like this, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Brothers and sisters of New City, choose this day whom you will serve. The kingdom of scarcity or the kingdom of generosity. Pharaoh or Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are your people, your disciples. Would you lead us as we apprentice ourselves to you into a way of being and doing that lives out of this inbreaking generosity of God our Father. That's what we want. Holy Spirit, would you do that in our midst? Would you stir us up to be the kind of people who clearly live for a different king in a different kingdom? We can't do this on our own. We can't do this by willpower. Unless you come and set us free by the knowledge of you, we are enslaved. Pray this in Jesus' name, our King. Amen.